A number of years ago, a man for whom I and all who know him have the utmost respect came up during our prayer and sharing time, and he asked the body to pray for him regarding a persistent struggle that was impacting his walk with God and his relationships with others. His correct assessment of his own sin, his genuine contrition, and his earnest desire to walk in a manner worthy of his calling were clearly evident. He had come to see himself and his sin as God sees these things. But even more importantly, he knew and declared that the goodness of God was his refuge, his rock. And so this body prayed for him and loved on him, and I didn't hear a single statement to the effect that we needed to somehow escort this guy out the door. And I'm sure that behind the scenes, some men who were close to him kind of followed up with him and checked to see how things were going. Since that day, that, that brother has continued to minister very, very faithfully in our midst, quietly but faithfully. For me, that was one of the most impactful events in my 30-year history with this body. And I would never say that every sin and every struggle needs to be brought before the whole church. But one of those, one of the most marvelous things that the grace of God does in our lives is it frees us from the facade of perfect piety. And when it doesn't, when we persist in that facade, something is seriously amiss. When we do that, we are presenting a false picture to our fellow saints of a mostly trouble-free, worry-free, sin-free, temptation-free life that does not exist. And we are, in effect, presenting an image that makes it look as if we really no longer very much need the grace of God when in reality there is not a second of our lives in which we are not utterly dependent upon the grace of God. And the worst of it isn't that we're misrepresenting what's really true about us, it's that we're misrepresenting what's really true about God and about His promises. We're giving people a badly skewed impression of how His grace actually works out in the lives of His redeemed. See, God's grace doesn't make this life easy. In fact, it's guaranteed to make it hard. Asaph was a very influential man in Israel. He was one of three men whom David appointed to be in charge of the ministry of music in the corporate worship of the people of Israel, first at the tabernacle and then later when Solomon built his temple. Asaph continued in that role. In fact, he became the the preeminent leader, the top of the food chain when it comes to came to the ministry of music in Israel. Asaph's ministry responsibilities impacted hundreds of thousands of Israelites who came to participate in the great festivals in Jerusalem at the temple. The songs of Asaph and David are part of the worship of the people of God and they have been for 3,000 
years. This psalm is a deeply personal recounting by Asaph of a painful spiritual journey through which God brought him. And it's not known at what point in his life this psalm was written, but it's noteworthy in light of the theme of this psalm that Asaph most likely witnessed firsthand the downfall, the prideful downfall of the most powerful king of that era, and his name was Solomon. Certainly, he got a close-up, and I'm talking about the moral downfall, by the way. Certainly, Asaph got a close-up look at the lives and practices of powerful men during the time of Israel's greatest power and influence in its entire history. And some of what he saw clearly wasn't good. In this great psalm, Asaph pulls back the curtain and he shares his own internal struggle with sin. A struggle that nobody would have known about except God if Asaph had not seen fit to make it known. what What a loss that would have been for the people of God. And we're not talking here about a brief, fleeting thought that Asaph was able to quickly replace with godly thinking. We're talking about a persistent struggle with envy and discontentedness and deep bitterness that pierced him to his innermost being and in his own words rendered him senseless and ignorant like a beast before God. Sounds a lot like Nebuchadnezzar during his all-vegan phase. This was a struggle that threatened to undo Asaph and through Asaph to bring harm to the people of God. Asaph gives us the big picture of God's marvelous promise right up front in verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And the rest of Psalm, uh, of the 28 verses of this psalm all key on that promise. Verses 2 through 14 are about how Asaph got that promise wrong. Verses 18 through 28 are about how God straightened out his understanding of that promise. And verses 15 through 17, right in the middle, provide a critical hinge or bridge that transitions from the problem to the solution. The promise in verse verse 1 was written, along with the rest of this psalm, somewhere around a thousand years before the promise that Paul wrote down in Romans 8, 28 through 30 that we looked at last week. But it is essentially the same promise. God will do good for His chosen people, for those whose hearts are fixed upon Him. When Asaph tried to understand what that good was that God had promised, without going to God for that understanding, he got it completely wrong. In fact, the very promise of God in verse 1 led him to deep frustration, disappointment, and bitterness. But when God turned his understanding of that same promise right side up, Asaph came to a place of real and durable joy and peace and strength unlike anything this world knows. There are two statements that be, there are two verses that begin with the phrase, but as for me, verse 2 and verse 28. And the contrast between those two verses is like night and day. 
They mark the starting point and the ending point of this spiritual journey. Again, as I mentioned, verses 15 to 17 form a bridge between the problem and the solution. Verse 16, right in the middle of that bridge, zeroes in on the cause of Asaph's problem. It says, When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. The problem Asaph lays out for us in the first half of this psalm arose when he pondered to understand a critically important reality, notably the prosperity of wicked men and the sufferings of righteous men. And he struggled to understand that reality independently of God's revelation. Clearly, he devoted a bunch of time and mental and emotional energy to trying to sort out something that he found perplexing. And the result was that his own ponderings in himself left him even more perplexed. The pondering part was entirely appropriate. That's what you're supposed to do when you encounter something that's difficult to understand. But the problem with Asaph's ponderings is that he was trying to understand God's ways without going to God. In short, Asaph uh, was trying to figure life out by himself. If ever there was a fast track to despair, that's it. Shortly uh, after I got saved, after God brought me to faith in Jesus Christ, I was sitting with my mom in a Sunday school class in the church in which I had served as an altar boy for some time. And the teacher of that Sunday school class posed a question, and I have no idea at this point what that question is. My memory is not that good, but this I do remember. When my mom opened her Bible to try to see what God had to say about that question, no doubt with a particular passage already in mind, the teacher said, let's just close our Bibles and talk about this as people with common sense. That is a fast track to despair. Professing to be wise, men became fools. Romans 1.22 See, when I ponder in my own mind and heart something as weighty and inherently perplexing as the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous, and when I do so without the revelation of God as my anchor, as my reference point, It's a certainty that my conclusions will be foolishness. Not because the logic that God put into us is useless, but because that logic was designed by God to be applied to and submitted to his revelation of himself. The Bible is filled with imperatives that have to do with using our heads. Reckon. Think. Consider, let your mind dwell on, let us reason together. But the object of our reasoning and the ground of our reasoning, the database to which our logic was designed by God to be applied and submitted is His revelation of Himself. And when we divorce reason from revelation, it becomes unreasonable. 
it becomes nonsense. Only when our God-given ability to reason is applied to the truth does it become reasonable. See, Adam didn't fall by contemplating what God had said. He fell when he disregarded what God had said and contemplated something else. And that's what brought about the problem that Asaph is laying out for us here. Now, what were Asaph's ponderings that got him into such a mess? His struggle centered on what he perceived to be the grievous contradiction between what people deserve and what they actually get. (laughs) The heart of his complaint was, the wicked get good things when they deserve bad, and I, on the other hand, the righteous man, I get bad things when I deserve good. Now, it's clear that Asaph was seriously overestimating his righteousness in the first half of this psalm. That got straightened out too. But he's saying, those wicked men deserve judgment. And the picture he paints of these men is one of unbridled arrogance and self-indulgence. Verse 6, he says, they wear their pride like a necklace and their violence like a garment. It's just right out there for all to see. It's blatant. He says they're so fat from their gluttonous self-indulgence that their eyes bulge out. What a picture. They put no limit or constraint on the imaginations of their hearts. They mock and they speak oppressive things from on high where everybody can hear their mockery. And their proud arrogance is directed even against the heavens and indeed against God himself. Psalm 39, verses 9 through 11, Asaph says, They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. And then verse 11, he says, They say, How does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? They're so full of themselves that they actually think that what they're doing down here is somehow hidden from God's view. That God, if he exists, is oblivious to what they're doing. And so they get to carry on their evil practices with impunity. It reminds me of what Peter said in Second Peter 3 about the mockers who will come in the last days, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, everything continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. See, what they're saying is, there's no judgment coming. If God was going to judge, he would have done so already. He's not even paying attention to what's going on down here. In his message on this same great psalm, Bob Deffenbaugh makes an important point regarding the identity of the wicked men that Asaph is talking about. He gives compelling evidence that they're not talking about rank pagans, about Gentiles. Asaph is talking about Jews. The word wicked that Asaph uses repeatedly in this psalm is applied in the Old Testament exclusively to evil men from among the sons of Israel. Jeremiah chapter 5 is a great example of this that sounds a whole lot like what we see right here in Psalm 73. In Jeremiah 5 verses 26 to 28, Jeremiah writes, For wicked men are found among my people. 
They watch like fowlers. That's professional bird catchers. They watch like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men. Like a cage full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They are fat. They are sleek. They excel in deeds of wickedness. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the orphan, that they may prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the poor. It's no coincidence that all of these accusations sound very much like the indictments that Jesus made against the Jewish religious leaders of his own day, the scribes and Pharisees. Just read Matthew 23 and you'll see the connection. The wicked men that Asaph is talking about are men who know what God had revealed to Israel through the prophets about his character, his mercy, his compassion, his righteousness. They know God's call to his people to humble themselves, to fear him with a godly fear, and to walk in all his ways. But they had turned away from God in all respects. But here's where the real problem arises. It looks to Asaph's eyes like those wicked men are getting the opposite of what they deserve. In fact, Asaph says that he wants what they have. He envies them. His heart is filled with envy. Verse 3, he says, they enjoy prosperity. Verse 4, their lives are pain-free even until their death. They don't even suffer the troubles that are common to all of mankind. It's like they are coated with Teflon. Verse 12, he says, they are always at ease. They have increased in wealth. And the worst of it, from Asaph's perspective, is that God doesn't chastise them the way he chastises him. (laughs) Verses 13 and 14, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. See, he says, what they have is a blessing and what I have is a curse. If God should be on anybody's back, Asaph is thinking, it should be theirs and not mine. But that's not how it's working out. Now, the word translated prosperity in verse 3 is the Hebrew word shalom. Many of you have heard that many, many times. It's the word that's most often translated peace. It's a very powerful and important word in the Old Testament. And the essence of its meaning is well-being. It can refer to well-being in the physical sense, like health, physical health. It can refer to well-being in a relationship, a condition of fellowship and reconciliation between people. It can refer to the absence of conflict with enemies. But when the Bible is talking about the peace that comes from God, the shalom of God, it's talking about a pervasive well-being in all aspects of life that derives from only one source, and that is the faithfulness of God toward his covenant people. When Asaph uses the word shalom the way he does here in verse 3, his slip is showing. He is betraying the error of his thinking A man in Asaph's position should have known that there is no such thing as shalom, as God defines it, for a man who has turned his back on God. 
Verse 3, the phrase, the shalom of the wicked, is what we call an oxymoron. Those two words don't belong in the same sentence. When we, you and I, look at the fortunes of wicked, rebellious, godless men, and we interpret those fortunes as blessings, in any sense, the red flags should go up. We should know right away that there's something seriously wrong with our interpretation. Because that's not how it works. And what happens to us when we indulge in these kinds of ponderings? The same thing that happened to Asaph. Just a few days ago, there was an article in the Washington Post about a Polish couple who was standing on the edge of a cliff in Cabo de, de Roca, Portugal, which is the very westernmost viewpoint in Europe. Very steep cliff, many hundreds of feet. They were taking selfies. Their bodies were recovered the next morning from the bottom of the cliff. They had stepped across a safety barrier to get these amazing pictures. That's a brutal but valid representation of how hazardous it is when we ponder the things that we observe in this life without going to God. Asaph says in verse 2, if you translate it very literally, he says, my feet almost were not. And then he says, my steps poured away. It's as if Asaph's feet were about to dissolve and just flow right, right out from under him so that he would have nothing to stand on. And interestingly, in that metaphor that he presents, the problem isn't with the ground, the promise of God. The problem is with him. When Asaph engaged in such ponderings, he became envious and resentful. There is arguably nothing more frustrating to our sensibilities than rank injustice, especially when we're on the receiving end of the injustice. God is good, and good is supposed to win the day, and evil is supposed to lose. And for us who believe that God controls all things, what could be more frustrating, more hopeless, than becoming convinced that God has acted unjustly? What recourse could we as mere mortals have against the actions of the creator of the universe? That's exactly where Asaph's ponderings led him. How many times have you heard or perhaps even uttered yourself questions that started like these? How could a good God do this? How could a loving God, how could a just God? Those questions are like anthems for atheists. They say, you're a fool to believe in a God who lets all this happen. If your God actually existed, he's proven himself either to be powerless over his creation or else he is unloving and unjust. And in either case, he's not worth worshiping. This is why Asaph said his feet were melting away under him. This is an exceedingly dangerous line of thinking. In verse 15, 
Asaph begins to make the transition from the problem to the solution. And it's no coincidence that verse 15 is the very first time in this psalm that Asaph is actually talking to God. And from verse 15 on, Asaph's words are directed to God himself. In verse 15, he comes to a critical and frightening realization. He says, If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of thy people. He's saying, Lord, if I had actually given voice to these terrible things that I was thinking, I would have drawn your people away from you. Beloved, some things should not be spoken. How many times have you found yourself dwelling on resentful and bitter thoughts and known in your heart, even as you were thinking them, that they make God out to be a liar, that they cannot be true? You don't have to know all that much Scripture to know that when you have thoughts that God is unjust or unloving or unmerciful or unconcerned with the things that are happening here, that you are flatly denying what he declares to be true of himself in this word. Nobody cares more about justice than God. No one cares more about righteousness or compassion or kindness or humility or love than God. The way we know what those words mean is by looking at him. His character defines them. To believe anything else about God is to believe a lie. So when you catch yourself in that mode of thinking, the one you need to be talking to is God. Not other people that you might draw into the same lie that you were entertaining in your own heart. Misery loves company, but until it is exposed to the light of God's word, misery does nothing but harm to the company it keeps. We looked at verse 16 earlier as the root cause of Asaph's trouble. He pondered to understand the fortunes of wicked men and the suffering of righteous men without bothering to go to God for that understanding. That failure put him at the precipice of a cliff. In verse 18, excuse me, in verse 17, we have the solution. Asaph did the one thing that ensured that both his thinking and the attitude of his heart would be set right. He came into the sanctuary of God. The sanctuary of God is the place where the people of God under the old covenant gathered to draw near to Him. Isaiah 60 verse 13, God equates my sanctuary with the place of my feet, the place where I sit. In Ezekiel 23.39, God equates my sanctuary with my dwelling, my house in the presence of my people. The sanctuary, first the tabernacle and then the temple, was the place in which God dwelled in the midst of his people. It was a representation of his dwelling in the midst of his people. His sanctuary was the focal point of the entire camp of Israel. The tribes were arranged around the temple so that it was the focus, it was the centerpiece of the camp of Israel. It was the place where the people of Israel gathered to worship together and to hear God's word read out loud and taught 
To come to the sanctuary of God was to draw near to the presence of God himself. What changes about our understanding when we do that? (laughs) Everything. What changes when we stop pondering in our own hearts independently of God and instead we come to God? Well, there are several things that we see that we didn't see before. First, we see the end of things. Verses 17 to 20, Asaph came to understand the outcome of things. The outcome for the wicked and the outcome for the righteous. When we humbly come before God and let Him tell us what's true and what's good, things get sorted out. And one of the most fundamental pieces of that understanding is that we stop interpreting things that we see in this life in terms of this tiny subatomic dot of time that is this earthly life, and instead we start interpreting things from the perspective of eternity, of everything that comes after. We come to see that it's not what we lay hold of here and now that constitutes well-being. Hope that is seen is not hope. It's what we will lay hold of fully later that is the cause for our hope. If one hopes for what he does not see, with perseverance he eagerly waits for it. You don't wait for something you already have. Glorification day is yet to come, and it's going to be incredible. As for those who care nothing about God, we see what God says about their end. Psalm 73, verses 18 to 20, Surely thou dost set them in slippery places, that has cast them down to destruction, how they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. And then verse 20 gives this picture that's just piercing. It says, Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, thou wilt despise their form, their image. It's as if God has awakened from a dream and wicked men are nothing but an image in that dream. And as soon as he awakens, they vanish. They're gone. That is how little men who have turned themselves away from God steadfastly will have to do with him when things are set right. Second Thessalonians 1 verses 9 and 10 says, These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of God and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at by all who believe. What a contrast. On the other hand, we who have been purchased by God to be his own possession, his inheritance, will on that day enter into a fullness of shalom, of well-being, that we can only now see through a clouded glass. We see when we come into the sanctuary of God, the outcome, the end of things. And we also see what God has been doing in the midst of things, here and now. Verses 21 to 24, Asaph says, When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before thee. But look what he says next. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. 
You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. He's saying, Lord, you had me by the hand the whole time. Psalm 37, which is very, very similar to this one. You can be dyslexic and you'll still end up with the same content. The steps of a man are established by the Lord and he delights in his way. When he falls, when he falls, he will not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. See, even when Asaph was at the precipice of the cliff, God had him by the hand. He's been leading us the whole way. My grandmother's favorite verse, Isaiah 41.10, Fear not. Do not look anxiously about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. Even when we've misinterpreted the sufferings and struggles of this life because we've turned our gaze away from God and we've sought to to understand things ourselves, when we've turned from His precious and magnificent promises, He still has his chosen people by the hand. And his counsel continues to work on us and in us. When he brings us to the end of the path of this earthly life without ever letting go of us, he will receive us into glory. If you belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, then no matter how well you have done with this life, you can be sure that God has never ceased to do the work in you that he has promised. One of the most influential mentors in my life when I was a young believer was a college professor at Texas A&M named Walter Bradley. He wasn't in my field. He was over in the engineering field. And he was a brilliant man, but a devout follower of Christ. And he often said, The struggle is the promise of the process. That was a phrase he said over and over. The struggle is the promise of the process. When we take time to look at what God's Word actually says about how He keeps His promise to us, to conform us to Christ, to make us fit to stand in His presence as sons, fellow heirs with Christ, it doesn't take long at all for us to see that the struggle that He brings us through is the promise of the process of that conformity. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 4 to 13 tells us that if we are legitimate sons of God, His painful, sorrowful work of discipline is our birthright. In fact, it says if you are without that discipline of which all of His legitimate sons have become partakers, then you're not a legitimate son. And what is the outcome of that discipline? Hebrews 12.10 says... He disciplines us for good, that we may share his holiness. The next verse says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. (laughs) This is just what we were looking at last week, right? God uses the painful things in this life to conform us to Christ, to make us holy. He is fitting us to stand in His presence as sons and daughters of the living God. 
And he's going to finish what he started. (laughs) Does that sound to you like a curse or a blessing? Philippians 2.13 says, It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. As we saw last week, the good that God has promised to do in us, he has done, he is doing, and he will do until it's all done. He's going to finish what he has started. When we come into his sanctuary, into his presence, and learn from him how things actually are, all this becomes clear. We see the end of things. We see what God is doing in the midst of things. And we see what is truly good. We understand what God means when he promises to do good to us. We see that our only good now and forever, is God. Verses 25 to 28, Whom have I in heaven? And besides thee I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but thou art the strength of my heart. And my portion, you know what the word portion means? It means my inheritance forever. As for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all thy works. God has not promised to deliver us from bad circumstances and give us better ones that match up with what we deserve. Heaven forbid that God should ever give us what we deserve. The knowledge, the certainty that resolved Asaph's struggle and that resolves ours is coming to know that God is our only good. How does that resolve the apparent injustice of wicked men prospering while righteous men suffer greatly in this life? How could it not? (laughs) How could it not resolve our misguided perception that bad men get good things when we learn from God that what we thought was good isn't good at all? When we learn that the well-being that we think we see wicked men enjoying isn't well-being at all. I found an article online that was a list of celebrities who had died either by suicide through the use of drugs or by complications to their health through the abuse of drugs. And there were over 500 celebrities in the list. Now, Asaph's not talking about Hollywood. He's talking about religious people. So I don't want to mix that up. But it should be crystal clear to us who belong to God, who behold that which is truly good, that the things that this world grasps with all of its strength are not good things. They're not blessings. It is in our relationship with God alone that we have been given an invincible hope an unquenchable love and an unconquerable joy. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, but you don't really understand what it means to say from your heart, the nearness of God is my good and step into his sanctuary for a while. Go to his word. 
respond to what you find there by talking to Him and come regularly, regularly into the fellowship of His people and worship Him. You'll never reduce it to a formula. It's not 30 minutes a day reading these passages and 30 minutes a day in prayer broken into these three components. It's a relationship with the living God. Spend time with Him. Behold Him. One of my favorite Mercy Me songs is called Word of God Speak. And the first verse goes like this. I'm finding myself at a loss for words. And the funny thing is, it's okay. The last thing I need is to be heard, but to hear what you would say. In Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, Jesus said, Come to me. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and what he means is be bound together with me. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find Rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. There are three imperatives in those verses. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me. We need to put our ponderings and our pie holes on pause until we have truly learned to listen to the one from whom every good thing and every perfect gift comes. What happens when we do that? (laughs) We find rest for our souls. And there's one more thing, one last thing that happens in this passage, and it's the very last thing that Asaph mentions. When we draw near to God, verse 28, as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all thy works. That's when our mouths are supposed to be opened. When we come into the presence of God, when we behold Him and learn of His works and His ways, when we worship Him, when we see Him as all our good, then we have something to talk about that's actually worth hearing. And it's time to talk. Dear Father, teach us to come to You and to abide in your presence so that we may learn and embrace that which is actually true. That we may know the precious and magnificent promises that have come to us from the God who cannot lie. So that we, like Asaph, may never tire to tell of all your works. May the name of our great God and Savior be adorned by our lives and exalted among men. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.